Hey folks, and welcome to week four of our series on early American literature. I'm Dr. Eccles. I'm your professor and lecturer for this class. And in this week's episodes, we're going to be thinking through uh, the American Revolution, the business of liberty, and the unfinished business of slavery. Uh, and we'll be looking at two groups of texts, uh, one by famous revolutionary author Thomas Paine, uh, who expresses what we kind of very traditionally associate with uh, the ideas of American liter liberty, uh, independence, common sense, and individual freedom. Um, and in the second lecture, uh, which will follow this one, I'll be looking at the work of the great African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley um, as kind of exploring this unfinished business of the principles of liberty that writers like Paine um, and most famously Thomas Jefferson um, express in their revolutionary texts. So in our readings for this week, we're jumping forward uh, about 150 years from last week and skipping over some fairly significant political events in the interest of covering uh, enough time in our syllabus. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that in the years between uh, the Puritan early colonies and the late 18th century, uh, Britain took place in what was known as the French and Indian War and the North American continent uh, and a number of other conflicts uh, around its kind of emerging global empire that led to uh, a large amount of debt uh, in the British government. And part of uh, paying for that debt involved heavily taxing the colonies uh, in North America and in the rest of the world. And these taxes have famously uh, you know, become the basis for the American Revolution. Um, you've probably studied this in school at some point um, and, and kind of heard about taxation, taxation without representation and things like that. But I think as we approach the text for this week, I want to uh, do a couple of things. First, I want to think about um, the rhetoric and the justification for these uh, revolutionary movements uh, that ultimately led to the creation of America as a new nation. Uh, and I also want to, after considering those things in this first lecture, uh, think about the the omissions or the things that are overlooked by these revolutionary movements, um, and specifically uh, the overlook, uh, overlooking and um, omission of slavery as a kind of uh, category of independence that is not included underneath various declarations of independence that are being made in this time. So in this first lecture, I'm going to focus on uh, Thomas Paine, a uh, famous pamphleteer and revolutionary uh, writer. And in the second lecture for this week, I'm going to focus on Phyllis Wheatley as a kind of uh, figure for and spokesperson for uh, that category of liberty that is being overlooked by these revolutionary movements. But to begin our thinking about uh, Thomas Paine, I think it helps to think back for a moment to our Puritan texts from last week. Uh, if you remember in the first lecture, I referred to 
John Winthrop's vision of a, a kind of American city on a hill uh, in which the colony becomes a, a an exemplary space for religious community that might uh, inspire the rest of the world. And it's built on this common identity of charity and, um, and mutual care uh, that, as I pointed out, doesn't, doesn't quite translate perfectly to the utopian society that, uh, that Winthrop is asking for in, in practice. And in the second part of the week, we talked about uh, revisions of that Puritan model of kind of communal religious orthodox identity uh, in the work of writers like uh, Roger Williams, the founder of the, of the Rhode Island colony. And if you'll remember, when I was talking about Williams, I mentioned that uh, he kind of represents this counter tradition, um, an equally important tradition to that city on a hill idea uh, that placed great emphasis on the individual conscience as a kind of site of uh, religious authority. So for Williams, uh, it, it wasn't necessary or even advisable to attempt to convert uh, Native Americans to Christianity because he felt that the work of God happened in the individual conscience, happened in the movement of God in your own personal soul. Um, and to encroach on that or to try to kind of short circuit or, or force that is to try to force God's hand. And that, that was something that he found um, deeply repugnant. He also had a lot of problems with the Anglican church um, and the Catholic church as sort of blending secular and spiritual authority. He thought that those things needed to be kind of kept separate in order to maintain that space for for sort of individual conscience and individual spirituality. That famously informed William's kind of emphasis on tolerance um, and allowing non-Puritan um, Christians and, and Jewish believers and Quakers uh, to participate in his colony. And it's this emphasis on the individual that I think um, really informs the revolutionary sentiments of writers like Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and the other drafters of the Declaration of Independence uh, issued on July 4th, 1776. And these movements come out of a, you know, a similar commitment to individual uh, conscience and individual intelligence as a sort of location for, you know, for right and ethical action. Um, and, and part of that comes from some fairly complicated um, philosophical movements um, in Scotland and other parts of, of Britain um, from philosophers following John Locke's um, political theoretical works. Uh, I won't go too into that, but I think that it, the, the key idea that informs this emphasis on the individual is the kind of notion of common sense. Um, these philosophers were even called the common sense philosophers for a, for a short period of time, uh, which is to say they focused on the fact that certain truths about human nature, about how humans should be in connection with each other, how they should be in political relation to each other, um, are self-evident and, and are visible to any individual with a certain amount of common sense. And I think that this really ties to that. We can think back to that Protestant Reformation idea we talked about last week, which points to, you know, 
the idea that if everybody can interpret the Bible all of a sudden, or if, if all you need to have spiritual authority all of a sudden is just the ability to read or the ability to understand the scriptures, then that opens the door to all kinds of things. Because what is, you know, what is a valid interpretation? What is uh, an authoritative interpretation? There's no longer these kind of strong um, clergy or, or ecclesiastical structures to determine that for believers. Um, and that opens the door to all these different sects and movements and, and Puritans and separatists and pilgrims and so on. Uh, and I think that that is kind of connected with this philosophical idea of, um, of common sense, that, that individuals, as we're starting to understand individuals as being able to be authorities on interpreting scripture, we also begin to think about them as able to um, be authorities on political matters or secular matters or determining their own kind of status uh, in the political system in ways that maybe weren't possible under like a hierarchical royal um, aristocratic system. And it's from these ideas, um, which I think connect back to uh, figures like Roger Williams, uh, figures like John Locke, um, kind of political, religious movements that have been developing over over 100 plus years at this point, that we get statements like Thomas Jefferson's, uh, certain truths are self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? These famous lines from the Declaration of Independence drafted by uh, Thomas Jefferson that really emphasize the individual as um as the site of political legitimacy. So no longer is it the idea that, well, if the king is in charge, God has put him there and it's our job to listen to him. Um, what we have is this notion that individuals should exercise their reason and their common sense to assert their own rights. And another word for thinking about that kind of emphasis on individual reason or individual conscience as the source of of legitimacy is the enlightenment. Um, this is a, a huge, uh, earth shattering, uh, intellectual development that in many ways follows that Protestant revolution or Protestant reformation in pointing to the power of the human mind to, um, develop things like this natural sciences, um, philosophy, law, um, codified religion, uh, all kinds of these structures that are emerging out of uh, a kind of blossoming of science and um, and economic principles in the uh, early 18th century, uh, that Enlightenment movement um, characterized by by philosophers and scientists like Isaac Newton and John Locke, who I mentioned, um, really emphasized reason and the mind um, as a as a key kind of tool for understanding and, and influencing the world, um, and even understanding and influencing things like religious beliefs. Um, so we see a kind of, not a, necessarily a loss of religious faith, but, a, but a, a transformation of religious faith into something informed by and shaped by uh, reason and rationality. And all of these things are at work in, uh, in, as I said, the Declaration of Independence and other documents surrounding the American Revolution, but also around uh, the work of Thomas Paine, who I'll turn to now. Uh, so Paine was, a, in, in many ways, a kind of typical um, 
or almost prototypical revolutionary young man. I mean, he was always getting into trouble from a very young age, um, organizing things like labor movements and protesting slavery. And uh, you know, it really made it hard for him to hold down a job um, or relationships and, and things like that uh, because he was kind of your stereotypical angry young man. Um, he was educated. He was not wealthy. He was motivated to um, to find ways for himself to get on in the world. In many ways, he kind of resembles, um, if you've seen the, the musical Hamilton, he resembles that young, scrappy, hungry, uh, kind of upwardly mobile uh, figure that was actually very common in the revolution and, and that you actually see in, in many revolutions around the world. Revolutions are a great time of opportunity for educated, unhappy, um, typically young men, but often young women as well. But Payne's particular genius, I think, was um, that he was able to take those ideas of the Enlightenment and the common sense philosophers, this kind of idea that uh, individual people are are capable of and responsible for their own position politically, um, and tr making it, packaging it very well for a broad audience. Um, he developed what it has been since kind of called plain style, so Payne's plain style, uh, in his pamphlets, um, his first of which, known as actually Common Sense, uh, were, was very influential in producing the kind of consensus that led to the American Revolution. And Payne really benefited from a couple of things, um, not just the the kind of slow spread of Enlightenment thinking that was that was catching on in American society, uh, but also just the development of printing technology um, that allowed for the rapid um, and efficient dissemination of of texts to a wide audience. I mean, this was happening all over particularly the Western world at the time, but especially in, uh, in America. You may remember that um, Benjamin Franklin got his start as a printer uh, in Philadelphia, and, and there, there was this blossoming industry. Uh, with, with the use of printing presses, you could duplicate and distribute uh, texts very quickly. That allowed writers like Payne to dis 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 sorry, disseminate their, uh, their revolutionary ideas very quickly. Um, and Payne's genius was being extremely educated, um, very savvy in, uh, in what he's read and what he has thought, uh, but being able to package those thoughts in a very approachable style that makes almost anyone who reads it think that this is just the most common sense, obvious thing uh, ever. He expresses his ideas as if they are common sense, uh, and that makes them very, very hard to argue with. And I should just pause and say, if you're interested in uh, these the historical developments behind uh, Payne's documents, behind the American Revolution, I highly recommend reading um, page A18 to A25 or so in the Norton. Uh, it gives you a good overview of the various voices and ideas and, and key texts for this period that we're going over rather quickly since we're in an eight-week course. But let's get back to uh, to Payne himself. And uh, the first text I'll be talking about is not chronologically the earliest text by Payne that we're reading. Um, so we're going to read the crisis number one um, as well as 
uh, a selection from Common Sense, which is a bit earlier. Um, but the reason for that is that uh, the crisis is available in its entirety um, for us to annotate, and that's why we're annotating it in perusal. I think it also is a very famous and, and strong example of Payne's style. Um, so there's going to be some, some chronological jumping around this week, um, so just be sure you're paying attention to dates in the documents so you know when things are happening. Uh, but as I said, P- Payne is famous um, for his plainness, right? Uh, as the Norton puts it, he is, is on record as saying he doesn't need any ceremonious expressions. He says, it is my design to make those who can scarcely read understand uh, to put his arguments in a language, quote, as plain as the alphabet and to shape everything to fit the powers of thinking and the turn of language to the subject so as to bring out a clear conclusion that shall hit the point in question and nothing else. Uh, now, as you listen to that quote, you may be thinking, like I am, that uh, that this is not so plain. This actually seems fairly complicated. Uh, and it's important to, to note the, the kind of contextual differences between writers working in Payne's time and our own. Um, even though he's famous for writing in plain style, it may take some time um, on our part as 21st century readers to to parse out what he's saying. Um, so I'll say budget a little bit of extra time to read things uh, once or twice, to kind of go over them a couple of times to make sure you're understanding what's being said, um, and to note um, when Payne is making references or particular kind of rhetorical gestures. And that's one thing I've asked you to look for in the perusal annotations of the crisis uh, as we think about Payne as a kind of careful rhetorical writer who's trying to produce a particular effect um, in his audience. So I'm going to give you plenty of time to do that on your own and with each other in the perusal assignment, uh, but I want to focus on the first paragraph of the crisis to kind of look at, at Payne's style and think about his rhetorical project. Uh, so the crisis was written in 1776, first published in, on December 19th. Uh, but then it was famously, um, sort of, you know, legend legendarily read on December 24th, uh, Christmas Eve, to Washington's troops before the crossing of the Delaware in the famous painting you've you've no doubt seen uh, in various places, uh, where they had victory after after a long string of defeats. Uh, it was a very difficult point in the Revolutionary War. Uh, when supply issues and winter um, and all kinds of things were were uh, hampering Washington's troops, um, so this is famous both as a kind of um, attempt to rally the troops, literally uh, to rally Washington's troops before the, ba- the crossing of the Delaware River, and to rally the uh, the colonists, the American colonists, the American revolutionaries, to continue in the face of what seemed like a, uh, at times, a losing effort. Um, So this is a a rhetorical attempt to kind of keep people on board with the revolution, to keep them encouraged uh, in the possibility of its success, and to keep them invested in the cause that the, the revolutionaries claim to be fighting for. Now let's think about uh, the opening sentence of this uh, this pamphlet, which is one of the more famous sentences that's been written in the last few hundred years. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman.
now I'm, uh, in addition to this course, I'm also teaching an introductory uh, literature course, and we're currently speaking about poetry and uh, the importance of, of sound and meter in the delivery of a message through a poetic text. And I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of what we've been t- talking about in that class really resonates with me as I read that sentence by Payne, uh, the times that try men's souls. There's a very poetic cadence to uh, his language here. It's, it's very memorable. You have that repeated T sound times that try. You have a rep- repeated I vowel sound times that try. Um, that kind of sticks in your head, right? And, and that's very intentional. I think that you know, like with, uh, with many poems, many speeches or political or rhetorical texts try to, um, try to deliver a message that sticks in your head. Um, what is Payne saying with that sentence? These are difficult times. Yes, they're trying men's soul. And if we think about the, the term try, uh, that could mean uh, testing, right? A kind of testing moment to see what men's souls are made of. It could be a kind of a trial right? Um, an experiment, like a trial run. It could be a trial, like a legal trial, right? Where we're weighing um, the validity of one cause versus another. Um, this language is rich. Um, it's stated very simply, but it contains many kind of resonances and echoes that, uh, that emphasize uh, Payne's point that this point in the revolution um, is a kind of uh, testing ground for the Enlightenment ideals for the democratic ideals that the revolutionary, uh, re- well, the, the revolutionaries are are fighting for, and he uses you know this continued sense of this is a test of you, reader, of of you, the audience's moral and and ethical and maybe even religious fiber, right? Um, summer soldiers and sunshine patriots are kind of derogatory terms, right? Especially if we think about this being delivered to shivering, starving uh, troops in winter, right? Summer soldiers are soldiers who only want to fight in good weather, who only are willing to show up when things are easy. Um, Pain is calling on these these soldiers, both literal and kind of metaphorical, to uh, to stand up and face the difficult circumstances that the revolutionary movement is currently experiencing. Um, he says, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Um, so he's both simultaneously saying, you know, our battle against what what we're calling tyranny against King George III is, uh, is difficult and it's like battling with the devil himself. Right, so you can see how he's kind of using a religious framework uh, to justify the American Revolution. Um, so instead of this is an issue because we don't want to pay too many taxes, uh, he's saying this is an issue of of our salvation of our souls. We're battling with with hell itself, um, and that's a a feature that endures in a lot of uh, revolutionary rhetoric, um, both from Paine and from Thomas Jefferson and other writers. Because when we think about it, um, I, I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a kind of glossy lens we use to to consider this historical period, uh, because it is, after all, the, the foundation of the nation that we're all living in, and we have certain patriotic feelings about it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's also important to not quite, uh, not buy the rhetoric hook, line, and sinker. 
um, because that is to to kind of lose our critical sense of of, of what's actually happening here. Um, and and you know it's important to keep in mind that as we think about the American Revolution, um, you know this cause is not an inevitable one. Um, it's not one that was even necessarily about uh, a liberation. The American colonies um, had a much more favorable and independent uh, society than most British colonies. If we think about a place like India, which is being administered by British governors um, kind of with an iron fist, American colonies had it quite um, quite easy and uh, by comparison. Um, so what these revolutionary thinkers and figures like Jefferson and Payne had to do is come up with a framework that would justify uh, essentially a rebellion against the king. Um, and part of how they do that is the sense that taxation without representation is slavery. Um, and that's what Payne does at the end of that first paragraph of the American crisis. Britain, as Payne says, uh, has declared that she has a right not only to tax, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then there is not such a thing as slavery upon earth. Uh, so that is a a connection that Payne makes that I, I, I kind of can't help but, um, but imagine um, what the enslaved men, uh, the enslaved black men in or attached to Washington's army might be thinking when they hear this paragraph being read, right? Um, you know, there's, there is a material and an important difference between literal enslavement, um, which was, we need to remember, very prevalent um, in American society at this point um, and would grow more prevalent with the, with the development of things like the cotton gin and the, and the need for more labor. Um, and so there's a difference between literal enslavement, chattel slavery, and um, the kind of metaphorical enslavement of having to pay taxes. I mean, if, if that's the case, we're all, you know, we're, we all still have to pay taxes right now, right? We just have maybe more say in the government that does that. So I think that, you know, we need to keep our ears tuned for the rhetorical flourishes um, that writers like Payne and Jefferson are very good at making, um, but keep our kind of historical and critical uh, shields up so that we're thinking about what was actually happening at the time, what is actually being said, and who is who is being spoken to. So, uh, you know, and I won't go too in-depth with this because I want you to do this as you annotate the text, but it's important to note that in each paragraph of this pamphlet, Payne kind of pivots and makes a slightly different argument um, towards the same central thesis that that Americans should persist in their struggle and that they they will not only uh, ultimately win but will will win in such a way that justifies their um, political and and sort of pseudo religious beliefs in independence and the in the individual spirit. Um, so if you read each paragraph as a kind of mini essay, um, you'll see that he takes various approaches to this argument. Um, he makes comparisons to historical events. Um, so he talks about, for example, um, times when panic has has sort of turned the tide in a revolutionary movement in a tragic way. He mentions like Joan of Arc uh, as one example in Paris um, of if the people had only managed to um, to resist that panic a little bit longer than the, than the course of history might have been changed. 
Um, he also talks about um, kind of religious principles of, of saying that, you know, he thinks that God won't give up anyone to military destruction if they have earnestly and repeatedly sought to avoid war. Um, so he's kind of saying that the, you know, the revolutionary movement has been one that that sought peaceful means over and over again, but was met with force by the British government. Um, this is not strictly historically true. Um, it's, it's a more complicated picture than that. Um, but he is kind of sim- simultaneously casting uh, the revolutionary movement as a peaceful one and um, as one that that um, will will be martially or militarily successful if it just keeps with it. He also draws pretty heavily on um, anecdotes or stories from his own experience, um, his experience of working with General Washington, what led to the retreat that has led to this kind of military setback that they're trying to overcome, um, why he thinks uh, Washington's character is such that that he will um, be able to lead the troops successfully out of this. Um, So there are almost there are dozens of kind of small points being made here to circle back to that central claim that uh, the movement is just uh, persistence is necessary panic is uh, is disaster and hope is warranted um, and he, he uses several different rhetorical techniques to point to that central claim. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing your um, your exploration of those techniques and those claims in your annotations of the text. And I also just in closing want to think about the title of this document. Um, and in fact, the, the series of pamphlets that would follow it, this is the first in that series of pamphlets, uh, the crisis, right? If we think about the term crisis, uh, it has it's kind of a two-sided term or, or like a double-edged sword. So if something is at a crisis, it is at kind of the high point of, uh, it's the highest possible stakes of a given situation. So it, it's, if we can win, we will win big. If we lose, we will lose big. Um, we need to attend to this moment as a key moment in history and give it all we've got is kind of what, what pain is, is claiming. Um, and again, this may or may not be strictly true. There are military historians and, and revolutionary war historians who have different opinions on this, right, on what the correct course of action might have been and or, or what, what the situation actually was. Um, but part of Paine's rhetorical genius is he could kind of make his readers feel um, over the course of many years and reading in very various kind of different specific situations, that these are important times. Um, these are times that require our attention in ways that maybe other times or normal times or the ordinary course of existence doesn't. Um, and we can see this. This is like a, a technique used by um, by politicians, by um, by leaders, by businesses now uh, even to kind of capture the intention and imagination of the public uh, and to make them feel that this is something really important and worth paying paying attention to. Um, and, and, and so that moment of crisis means it's also a moment of great opportunity. Um, and that's something that he highlights in his closing lines in the last paragraph. Um, by perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. 
uh, by cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils, a ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope, our homes turned into barracks and body houses for Hessians, and a future race to provide for whose fathers we shall doubt of. Look on this picture and weep over it, and yet, if there remains one thoughtless wretch who believes him not, let him suffer it unlimited. Um, so, you know, he begins on a slightly high note saying these are the times that try men's souls and, and, and if we can only persevere, we will be victorious. Uh, but this closing paragraph is, is almost a gloomy, uh, a grim picture of the cost of, of failing. So he's, he knows that you need both a kind of carrot and a kind of stick to motivate people. Um, and this last paragraph is something like uh, a stick or a warning of what will happen if they do not um, persevere in, in, in resisting the British. And in addition to, uh, to the crisis, I'm also having you read thoughts on the present state of American affairs from Payne's uh, early editions of Common Sense. Um, this was a broader pamphlet that, that largely led to or helped lead to the, um, the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and that is also a very famous document. Uh, it's in the Norton. Uh, it's about only th three or four pages that I'm having you read. Um, but similarly, I would encourage you to read that document um, as a highly rhetorical text, as a text that is trying to justify um, a violent revolution, as a text that is trying to sell the American colonists on um, what feels like a long shot, right? A small group of colonies resisting a global empire um, with, with a great standing army and navy and all kinds of advantages. Um, so, the way he describes Britain, the way he describes America, the way he justifies um, the American Revolution uh, it are all things that are worth paying attention to as you read through that document. Um, and, and we'll talk next in the next lecture about uh, the relationship between Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence and the kind of unfinished business or overlooked business of slavery as a, as a key exception to these uh, calls for equality, for independence, for individual liberty. Um, and I'll read alongside Jefferson, uh, Phyllis Wheatley's uh, wonderful poems that kind of call the American project to account for those, uh, those omissions or overlooked uh, you know, lives and experiences.